This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs. Listen live or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everyone. Richard Solomon, my father's place radio, Taking Care of Business. We have an unbelievable guest. Now, we have stories. We have great stories. My guest is Gianni Russo, and you probably know him from film, song, book, podcast, live performance. Uh, check him out. You need to go to uh, Hollywood Godfather, look him up. And uh, first of all, thank you for the privilege and the honor of being on the air with me. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm always gracious to people who want to talk to me, especially on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're a fellow radio personality, so you know. Let, let you have first of all, you have a book, and the book is called Hollywood Godfather: My Life in the Movies and the Mob. It's doing very, very well. Uh, in seven countries, I'm happy to say. <laughs> let's, let's talk about it. Tell me about that book. Why Why did the book come out sort of, I know it was like March of last year, but but why at that point in time? I mean, I left that up to, to the publishers. They didn't want to saturate the market in Christmas because that's when all the big publishers release things, mm-hmm. release things. And so they felt if they put it out in March, it would be great for a summer read, start to get legs. And it did. I mean, it's still selling really well. And here we are almost a year now. Well, in fact, next month's a year. Well, what's very interesting is, you know, in my travels, I tell people, hey, who are my upcoming guests are going to be? And I was at a, a car place and I was having my car serviced. And the service manager uh, was saying, oh, I read his book. It's an incredible book. <laughs> so yeah, I've been getting that a lot myself on the street, which is such a great compliment. You know, because uh, fortunately I have, godfather fame that's 48 years old so to have something current and people are really in tune to it men and women so that and even young young generation they love the book so i I, i'm a writer too and writing is a very difficult and long process it always starts with zero data on a page tell me about your writing processes was was it a matter of dictating was a matter of note writing well, my, my, my process was simple because I had to wait till I was 75 to write the book. And your, your listeners are going to be shocked by why. I had to wait for certain people to die so I could talk about them <laughs> because I have so many people in it. And uh, the hardest thing for, for me in this book was not having enough material. We had to edit so much out that now my... Uh, my publishers, St. Martin's Press in this country and um, Macmillan in London are requesting two more books, which is always a nice compliment. So what goes on the cutting room floor will get recycled or upcycled? Exactly, exactly. But I, I came up with an idea that I think I'm going to pursue because, you know, I only have one life and those stories are interesting enough. But I, I can tell more stories but I'm thinking of writing it as a nonfiction instead. So I don't go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent does 
your podcast, which we'll talk about in more depth in a little bit, sort of amplify the components of your book? Well, it's basically uh, the questions we get and the interest that we, we receive by mail and emails and everything else. They're so enamored with the book and they start pinpointing different stories and different people that they know I met and ask questions about them. So now do I not only have uh, Nick Vellalongo from Green Book fame last year who won Best Picture, Best Screenplay, he and Colin Wilson from Avatar fame, they're currently writing a 10-hour limited series. Wow. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we can talk about a lot. In fact, fact, uh, I just discussed last weekend with Nick the first episode. I couldn't believe. I mean, the guy's a brilliant writer. I mean, I I love Green Book. I love the sensitivity of it. And my life has a strange cycle, how it keeps repeating itself. Nick Vallelongo himself, as a six-year-old boy, was in my wedding scene when I did The Godfather. Wow. So you, you kind of touched on a very interesting question. Could you say that there is a theme or several different recurring themes to your life? And could you articulate what those themes are? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I got around the greatest people in the world, maybe not to the physical public, but to me, you know, my, my, one of my first people who looked after me indirectly was Carlo Gambino because his niece was a candy striper at Bellevue Hospital. I went into Bellevue Hospital August 7th, 1949. And I had polio, and I had no use to the left side of my body from head to toe, and had to rebuild myself. And because my family knew his family, even from Sicily, he asked her to look after me. And if it wasn't for that girl, giving me the extra jello at night or a hug when I needed it. You know, I got there when I was six and a half years of age. Most kids should be playing Cowboys and Indians. I'm in a 20-bed ward watching kids die just out of depression because there was nothing going on. They didn't know what this was. And we were all a part of an experiment with Jonas Salk. So you can only imagine... uh, the depression in that ward itself and to have somebody because I never knew when I saw the word quarantine, it's like a block long to a six year old kid. And I found out the true meaning of it, man, nobody's coming. Not your mother, your father, nobody can come. And how do you explain that to a, a kid that's sick in shock from not being able to even use the left side of his body and now to survive because if you, if you were going to therapy, when we came back, if you passed away, your bed would be scrubbed and you went to heaven. Well, you know, that, that takes a, a tremendous strain on you to repeatedly see this. I didn't want to make friends with anybody in the ward because I, I was alone already. I felt, let me just stay that way. And you won't believe what changed my life. A transistor radio. That was, I mean, here we are on the radio talking about cycles. <laughs> Dolores Barone, on my birthday, because she knew nobody was coming, the night before my birthday, she brought me a little transistor radio. And when I turned it on on my birthday morning, there was nothing to do. There was no TVs like there are in hospitals now. 
Nothing like that. They were playing Frank Sinatra all day long because I was born the same day. Wow. And just them relating to who he was in Hoboken, Italian-American from, you know, modest means. His father was a fireman. This man became like my mentor, my, my living hero. And they cut, you know, they cut to the New York Paramount. He was creating havoc, doing six or seven shows a day. And it just kept going from there. So, I mean, and Sinatra stayed in my life. He baptized my last son, Luciano. I mean, it's just, my life is a cycle. It just keeps going. I mean, the first movie theater I went to was Paramount Theater to see Some Like It Hot, 1954. And here I am now partners with Paramount and, and, and Viacom. And made my first movie with Paramount 48 years ago called The Godfather. So, I mean, it's my life. I don't know, maybe because I stay in the same neighborhood for 77 years. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's, a, it's a great, uh, I feel, a great privilege to have the body of fans that I do have. And, and they, they stay with me in all different mediums. Did, did you tell Frank Sinatra the story? I'm sure. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And what, well, was, what was that conversation like? And what, what did it mean to him? Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because I, the man who I started selling ballpoint pens to on 59th Street and 5th Avenue, I didn't know who he was for months. But he had always come. He touched the left side of my shoulder, my body, and, you know, tapped me or hugged me, give me some words of wisdom, never took a pen. Give me $2, $3, sometimes even $5. He used to say, I had a lucky day, here's $5. Never took a pen. And the man's name was Frank Costello. Wow. And originally then I was, went to work for him as a messenger. One day we got into conversation months later and uh, I worked for him for about four or five months until I was in the Copa one day and Frank Sinatra was having a sound check for his appearance there. This is what I'm saying. My cycle is so crazy. So I had the opportunity I think I was like 14 at that time to tell him because I spent five years in the hospital. Then I came out and went to work in downtown on Mulberry Street and a bakery. So yeah, I was around 14. So I waited. In fact, he saw me come in the kitchen and he looked at Jules Bordello in the corner and Jules said, no, no, he's Costello's boy. And I never, I never heard that before. But when I heard Costello's boy, I felt like 10 feet tall. <laughs> And then I just sat down and I listened to this guy who I only heard on the radio. So I waited for him to give the break to the musicians. And he was just about to light another cigarette. And I lit it for him. And he says to me, what's your name, kid? I said, the kid. He's what? I said, the kid. He said, no, what's your name? I said, that's that's all I can tell you. He said, who gave you that name? I said, Mr. Costello. He said, I guess I better not ask. But I told him how he saved my life. And I told him this story. And he teared up. And I know, now I know Sinatra, you know, I've watched him cry many times. I was with him the day his mother's plane at at the mountain at Palm Palm Springs. And she passed. But I'm saying, here's a guy that he felt sorry for me. And I, I, I felt good that he did, if that's a weird feeling. But here's a man of his caliber feeling for me. And uh, 
I have stories like this where you, we could talk for days. People well, who have come to my aid have always helped me. That's what I try to give back myself. Well, that's why people should be listening to your podcast, Hollywood Godfather podcast. Uh, look that up on your internet searches. So let me go back to Frank Sinatra in a promotional piece that you did for my father's place at um, in Roslyn. You said that you uh, were given singing lessons by Frank Sinatra. Could you talk about that? Yeah. Well, again, you know, as it would be, I got very close to him when I was running all over the country for Costello when Joe, Joe Kennedy approached him and the mob to get his son pr- to become president. And he knew they needed all the unions and all, the, all the, everybody's help. And the, the guys who were running the major cities, meaning the mob. So I was running all over the place, expanding my friendship in the underworld with people like Carlos Mathelis in New Orleans, the Savellas in, in Cleveland, Accardo and Sam Giancana, Chicago. I can go down. I can go down mob history from memory <laughs> of all the places I've been, including Sicily, and and obviously Vegas was my big point to be there and be a part of the grooming of just a fly on the wall, the grooming of Senator John F. Kennedy. So I got to meet Sinatra again and again. And Marilyn Monroe, who I had a, a tremendous relationship with before the last four years of her life. And uh, so one day he said to me, I told him I want to sing. He said, yeah, what makes you think you'd sing? I said, I don't know. He said, well, when you want to learn how to sing, come out to Palm Springs. So you never should tell me that because I'll, I'll ring your doorbell. <laughs> so I called Dorothy in his office and went through the right protocol. And I said, uh, Frank said I can come by when he when he's home. And she gave me a schedule, and we arranged it. And I went to his house. And what's the funniest thing? She said to me, "Make sure you bring a bathing suit." And I'm saying to myself, "I don't want to go lay out in the sun. What are we talking about?" My first singing lesson, he met me out at the pool, and even the house boy—I forgot his name—it was Henry. He was there forever. He said. Uh, Put, get a bathing suit out of the, out of Cabana. Or did you bring one? I said, I brought one. He said, all right, put it on. And I'm saying, I said, what are we doing here? And here he comes out. And he says, and we had small talk. And he said, submerge yourself in the pool. I said, okay. He said, now I want you to concentrate and take as much breath in as you can and submerge yourself and stay down as long as you can. And he started timing me. And I said, what, what's this about? He said, well, I learned from Tommy Dorsey how to breathe. Wow. And without breathing, you can't phrase. You really don't, you can't control your instrument. It's the, it's, your throat is like a reed in a horn. Your breath has to flow through it evenly. And you have to have enough of it so you can finish a phrase. You singing is like telling a story to music. If the story's no good, the song is no good. And, and that I, I, I still do that now. And I remember the first song he taught me. It becomes like my, my, my exercise in my mind. And uh, that's how he became my singing teacher. Wow. I was fortunate enough to actually be in the audience at uh, one of Frank Sinatra's performances at the Westbury Music Fair. Mm-hmm. And one of the great things he talked about were all the great songwriters 
and the great God, yeah. songs that were written that you know the, that he performed. And I thought yeah. it was great homage to the people who actually wrote all the songs. So, yeah. and they don't really write great songs like like that anymore. No, you know. Oh, let's do the music these kids are listening to. I mean, it sounds like an argument somewhere. <laughs> uh, we we have like two minutes. So, when you sing, what kind of songs do you sing? And will you be singing at my father's place? Yeah, I'm going to be singing at my father's place, and I'm singing every. I'm singing about eight or nine tunes that are so special to me in my life. And our audience there is going to hear Sinatra sing for when the inauguration of JFK. I have footage nobody has when he changed the lyrics to High Hopes at the inauguration. And then you're going to see Marilyn Monroe sing to us from the clip of Some Like It Hot, which I watched I watched that movie 50 times. And when she came out and sang with that sheer dress on, remember, I was 50, 15 years old. I mean, forget, I can't even tell your audience what I was doing on the balcony. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, that's the experience you're going to have here. And, you know, the, the, the closeness I had with Sinatra, talking about Ava Gardner, is really true love. I mean, Nancy, the mother of his children, he spoke to every day. People don't know that. But Ava Gardner t- tore him apart, inside and out, tried to kill himself. And the one song that he attributed to her is All the Way. Wow. He said, I fell in love with her all the way. Nobody could fall in love more than that. Wow. And he, could, he was a tribute subconsciously to her every time he sang it. Wow, that's that's great. So this is Richard Solomon. My guest is the incredible, multi-talented, podcasting, singing, acting, book writer, Gianni Russo. And uh, stick with us. We have a lot to cover. The stories, uh, we'll try to fit as much as we can in the hour of radio that we have. But we'll be right back. This is Russell Hitman Alexander from the Hitman Blues Band, and you are listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. All right, Richard Solomon, taking your business, my father's place radio, and occasionally we call the show out of the question. No matter what, we are listening to the, the beautiful voice, the great stories, the insights, and the inspirational moments from Gianni Russo, who is a writer, podcaster, a performer, uh, artiste, you know, you got to check out his podcast. Uh, interestingly enough, kind of before we were taping the show, I was listening to Sinatra, uh, you know, so, you know, at the bank. I'm like, this, this is very apropos. Now, in sort of pre-production, you were telling me that you were sort of trained in sort of performances by both Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. Could you kind of carry that forward a little bit? Oh, yeah. Well, see, I... During the the times of the '60s, I, I was I was in the Sands Hotel maybe every weekend because you know imagine I have carbonche, power to pen, I do anything I want there. Every pit boss, everybody in the world used to come up and shake my hand with a black chip in it, and they all knew I was with Costello, who owned it. No, a lot of people don't know he owned a big piece of the Sands and the Tropicana. So with that, you know, I sat ringside, I had tables every night. And Frank and Dean got to know me so well. And even Sammy, they talked to me from stage. Everybody wanted to meet me in the audience. Who's this kid? <laughs> <laughs> but, and they told me, because I used to watch them, because they, they saw me. And, and, and they, you know, they, they, 
talk to me on you know outside of the pool or whatever. Even Dean said, don't ever worry about making a mistake or forgetting a lyric. Use it. My personality, people want me to make a mistake. And it's so true. A lot of these performers get on to up so tight, they can be walking out and just let it go, man. He said, everybody in that audience came to see you. Do whatever you want. You could stand on your head. They'll like it. Would you make you, a mistake. You're human. Make the mistake. They'll come along with you. Would you say that Dean Martin was underappreciated as a performer? I don't, I, the people who knew him know, but everybody, he was never, I mean, everything was Sinatra, you know, Dean to me, and I said, there's even the Frank, he said, who's, who's your best performer? He thought I was going to say him. <laughs> I said, Dean, so what do you mean? I said, Dean's, you know, Dean's a, a guy's guy. You're, you're like, you know, you don't know who you are. So what do you mean by that? I said, sometimes you're angry, sometimes, you know, he's, he's the worst drunk in the whole world, you know, I don't know if you know that. Sinatra gets drunk, he thinks he's six foot four and he wants to fight everybody. But Dean, I knew Dean and people that know him, you know, out of, out of Ohio and I mean, everything in Steubenville. And, and this, he was a fighter under the name of Kid Crockett. He worked a gambling hall for the, for the, uh, the purple gang, I don't want to give out names. Yeah, yeah. No, but he, he was groomed by these guys. And a tough guy. But a man's man. He really didn't care. He didn't care. And that's why when you know, they wanted to renew his show after two years on NBC. He said, I really don't want to do this. And they said, we'll make it easy. He said, I don't want to rehearse. He told them everything he didn't want to do. They okayed it. And then he, this was the classic. Very few people noticed. He said, I don't want to get paid. They said, what do you mean you don't want to get paid? He said, no. He said, let me rephrase that. I want to get paid in stock. And they gave him the uh, uh, NBC stock. He died the richest performer of anybody. Believe me, better, more than Bob Hope Sinatra. Hmm. Because he was getting stock. For 12 years. <laughs> wow. And it was all just appreciating. So, hello. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever attend any of the tapings of the Dean Martin roasts? Oh, my God. Yeah. Could you talk about it? Because, you know, I've watched those when when they were actually on live television. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, there was I, Lucille Ball. I, and, I mean, there was some of the most famous people. That must have been such oh, an experience. The deuses are insane. It was Rickles I, and, and, oh, and yeah. Lucy Ball. And, but I'll tell you something. The, they, those were carried on for a long time by the Friars Club, but because of censorship and they got so vulgar. I mean, I was one, the last one I was at was for Quentin Tarantino and De Niro and uh, Uma Thurma and all these people on it. It was insane what was going on up on that <laughs> dais. And I, I happened to be on the dais because I had some, some credentials. You know, they know I made 46 motion pictures. That won nine Oscars. So me being a friar and have the friends that I have. In fact, went that that one, Donald Trump was on the dais. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they were classics. They had they had them. You know, you you could subscribe to them. I have most of them. What were some of the interesting behind the scenes moments? Either, well, the behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes. They they were always on. I mean, they did an hour of drinking. 
I mean, I, I don't know if you remember. Um, you named the greatest comedians and well, women. George Burns is what was was always on. Oh, these things. George Burns, was Bob Hope, Milton yeah, Berle, I think they, was they on. Had those one-liners, it was insane. Then, then Rickles, who came around later, took it to another level of insults. But you know, Red Buttons never had a dinner. I mean, I could tell you every one line they knew these guys. What was the most interesting behind-the-scenes perspective that you could provide? the people who never really saw the behind the scenes, but only saw the finished product. What, what was it like? Was it? We were at a bar. I forgot what hotel it was before we went over. And there was like Joan Rivers, Ruth Buzzy, all <laughs> these people like that. And they were getting soused. I mean, drunk. <laughs> and now they're trying to up each other doing one-liners. And then they would challenge you, who said this, who said that. I mean, I, we watched that. They should have taped that show. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Did, did you learn anything from behind the scenes that you I- incorporated later on in either acting, podcasting, or your live performances? I'm like a sponge in the desert. When I'm with those kind of people... I'm, see, I understand it's not fair to so many other people that are listening. I used to go to Tut Shores on a daily basis and see Frank Gifford when he was with the Giants. Yeah. And when Jackie Gleason was filming right here, which is now the Colbert Studio, which was the Letterman Studio. I keep changing the name of that studio. Yeah, it was the Ed Sullivan Studio. At one yeah, point. yeah, yeah, yeah. But before that, Jackie Gleason did a show from there also. Did you know that? I, you know what? I, I, I know that now, but, you know, it's not something that would really resides in the in the, the memory because, you know, everyone thinks of him sort of as the honeymooners, but then he did all these other things oh later on. God, and then, yeah. then the tapes were lost for a while, but then they found some yeah. stuff and, you know, and some of it, you know, one of the things that I always thought was fascinating about Jackie Gleason is that he didn't want to do too much rehearsal because he was afraid that rehearsed comedy wouldn't really be funny. And that's what Dean did. Dean, Dean never did anything. You know, he'd get to NBC Studios. I went over a lot to see the tapings of the Dean Martin show, which stayed on for 10 years. It was yeah. crazy. And that's what he did. He had somebody point him here. The director say, here, hit this mark, that mark, this, that, and the other. And that was it. See you later. And that's why all that goofing and laughing when they would, they'd mess up lines, because they didn't rehearse. But the audience loved it, because they felt they were being taken in like when Sinatra and them would just sit there or Bob Hope, they would do those stupid skits. You know, it's, that's, and that's what I learned from them. Just go out. Well, hopefully you and your audience right now is going to come and see my debut of this show that I just wrote. An offer you can't refuse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when I listened to your episode about the, the, the rubber gloves, I'll just call it the rubber gloves episode. <laughs> <laughs> it is an offer that you can't refuse. That was when you were working to collect money uh, on yeah. on package store debt. Let's just leave it at that. I'll leave the yeah. the, the tantalizer for the folks out there. But, but do you believe the guys who own this package store now do twelve billion a year? Well, you know, I guess you got to get it on the ground floor. <laughs> <laughs> but they owed you twenty three thousand in those days. And you know what? In those days, $23,000 oh was an enormous amount of money. 
And, I was and, very creative in collecting money. Always was. Well, you know, it's funny. One of the yeah. things I do uh, as a lawyer is I, I, I have um, classes that I teach for lawyers called continuing legal education, which is a requirement to maintain your license. And over the years, I actually wrote a book called Winning in the New York Small Claims Courts. And I talk about collection. The thing is, your collection efforts were, are much better than what I, whatever I came up with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You get locked up now. <laughs> you know, so, I couldn't exist. If I was born 20 years later, I, I'd probably not have no life. With all these cameras everywhere, forget about what I got away with. Let's leave it at that. But, <laughs> it's like insane. But what was it like? existing without ease of communication in terms of, you know, you're talking about all the traveling going from Vegas and New Orleans and Miami and all these places, but you didn't have cell phones. You didn't have really, you know, walkie talkies or, you know, you know, the next telephones or anything like that. How did, you know, how did you get immediate communications accomplished? But uh, see the interesting thing, like you're pointing out, you could only miss that if you had it. We never had it. I, I had, Always two rolls of dimes in my pocket. Because <laughs> <I, laughs> that that that's what it. phone calls were in those days. That yeah. was it. Yeah. Do, do you know there's like barely a payphone anywhere? You, I think you have to hunt them down. I think <laughs> I think there's one they said. Some, somebody mentioned this in a, a statistic the other day. There's one payphone actually working in New York City. Wow. Now, now, just to bring back some nostalgia, do you remember the Dynamat? Oh, yeah. I love that. I just love that. that. That's part of the New York that I miss. I mean, I've always been a New Yorker, but there was a time when you had to have dimes for, for pay phones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and then, you know, you could go to the Dynamat and get yourself a, a very, very nice meal. It was very cool. And I remember, you know, to get a cup of coffee, you put like a nickel or something like that. And Do you it came out of the lion's the mouth. Automat? The, 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 the automat, yes. Yeah, yeah. We call I guess I call it the diamond, but the automat, yeah. yeah. The automat. Yeah, I mean, it's just great I stuff. used to go to one on 57th Street. Uh, it was crazy. Just yeah, walk it, up, put money in the door, and pull it out. <laughs> it, was, it was the coolest thing. Yeah. What do you miss from that era of New York? I, I, I miss, you know what I miss most of all, all the eras? Nobody dresses anymore. I still wear suits and dress. I dress. I go out for a walk. I get dressed. I see people on the street now. My gardener dresses better than them. <laughs> you know, so you, you talked about even when you were in Miami, you dressed even though it was incredibly hot. Right. Yeah. So I, You know, I still dress to go on an airplane. I see people get on a plane. Now they got their pajamas on yet. What do you owe your sense of style to? Who was your influence? Oh my on God! That? Well, my first mentor in dress was Costello. Okay. And I remember when he first told me to go to Layton's and get some suits. You knew the guy over there. Then we started wearing Brioni. And then I met a guy who I, I saw. I saw a watch in a window, and I asked the lady to give me the, the serial number on a watch in 1957. And she said, what are you going to do with this? I said, well, someday I'm going to have enough money. I want that watch. Because I thought it was an Italian watch. It was a Cellini-designed Rolex. <laughs> but I saw Cellini. I, I identified it as Italian, not realizing Rolex is the better name for a watch. And uh, I have the watch on now. I, I only wear one watch. I mean, I have a lot of them, but this is the watch. And Johnny and Nelly 
Fiat Motor Company, Ferrari, and all that. He gave me the watch when I went to see him. Oh, wow. And he taught me how to dress. Talk about color. I wear a lot of color. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm 77. I'm not the guy in the grays and khakis. I'm the guy with the red jeans on and the blazer. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned style because I, I, I did an interview at Forlini's restaurant downtown in Manhattan. They've been around for 60 years. And we were looking at pictures of patrons from, like, say, the 1940s. And you see men wearing, you know, white shirts, ties, hats, raincoats. And, you know, and this was just, it was like everyday people were just always dressed much nicer. So, oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely something that's changed. I, I remember the first time I came uptown after I was down, after I got a Bellevue and I was working for McNaughty's Bakery. Then I came uptown with my ballpoint pens. And I, I get out of the train, the end train on 59th Street and 5th Avenue. It was a, a, during a weekday. Everybody was dressed. And I was confused. I was saying, is today Sunday? Because the only people I saw get dressed were the ones that went to church. <laughs> Sunday best. Everybody had their Sunday best on every day up here. I loved it when I first got here. So, so let, 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 it's amazing how time is flying. So let's talk just a little bit before the break about your podcast. Um, you have an interesting co-host, uh, a retired police officer. Yeah, he was my <laughs> co-writer to the book. I, I went through so many writers and authors, great ones. I mean, Frank Wyman from the literary group is my, is my guy. And uh, he brought everybody in from Dan Moldea. I mean, if you see my book, Nick Pileggi uh, endorsed it. Uh, oh, my God, he's one of my closest friends. He lives on my block. Gay Talese. Ah, wow. Everybody. I mean, that's who endorsed this book. Imagine these guys. It's my first book. They, they did forwards for me. It was crazy. But I, I said, I got to have, and I like even Dan Moldea got mad at me. He just finished the, uh, the Clinton book. And they, rep, they said, you know, they represented him to let him, and I met with him. I said, do me a favor. I said, I, I don't, don't take it as an insult. Could you write me three or four pages of who Johnny Russo is to you? Okay. He was so in- insulted. I said, why are you insulted? You don't know me, and yet you want to write my biography. And if you can't impress me with three pages, how are you going to do it in 300 pages? <laughs> so how did Patrick become the co-writer? This is crazy, because I went through everybody, and Frank called me up. He said, I think I got the guy. I said, okay, give me a little history on him. He's an ex-cop who became organized crime in New York, raised on Mott Street. His father had a bar. He knew the language. He knew the pacing. And one of the things, you know, in his career, he's, I always heard about you, and I was wondering why you were never arrested. <laughs> <laughs> See, but that was, that was Costello. That's why Costello, when I was introduced to people throughout the world, call him the kid. And everybody said, that kid's coming. And everybody knew. How are you going to find me? That's why a lot of these guys messed up, man. I mean, a lot of the times they use nicknames, but those nicknames became more, more stylish and, and known than their real names. I was always known as the kid. Wow. I met Senator John F. Kennedy as the, as the kid. Everybody was the kid. Wow. Fascinating stuff. All right, Richard Solomon. 
Gianni Russo, Hollywood Godfather, Hollywood Godfather podcast, Hollywood Godfather, My Life in the Movies and the Mob from St. Martin's Press. And we will be right back to continue our really cool conversation. Keep it locked here. Hey, this is Johnny Rulo, and you're listening to Richie Solomon on 88.1 FM WCWP. Hey, Richard Solomon, Gianni Russo, thanks for listening. All right, so it's amazing how fast an hour of radio can actually go. So let's go into your podcast. So Patrick is your co-author. He's also your, I guess, your co-host on your podcast? Yes. All right, so you drop a new show on Wednesday nights. Every Wednesday night. We've done, we're uh, an hour on, uh, hour. we're a year on already. We have 52 shows up. And if you, uh, you can start from the beginning if you want, go to episode one and go all the way through them all. And uh, what, we, what we did do, which I, I wanted to do, I wanted to have somebody, uh, a millennium person. So that's why now, you know, we got uh, Megan, that's our, our co host, and um, she asked the questions. I hope that young people would ask. So she's on the air with us. So it's really, it makes it a nice conversational thing. And our audience spans from 18 year I had 16-year-old fly here with his mother and father this Christmas vacation. And come, come on the show. Wow. I told him, come on. He was so enamored with it. His mother said, you can't stop listening to it. So, so it's so, that kind of a thing. So what are the trends in the kinds of questions and do the questions vary from country to country? So like, that's, that's a great question. They actually do. In fact, this, this last week, we do one show a month just on the mailbag and me traveling as much as I do. I have kids all over the world, but I, I have like my godson in, in Sweden call me. This 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 Monday, asking a question. I mean, we got people coming from Australia, India. I mean, I, I get calls from Italy. It's it's crazy. But and 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 the questions obviously is like from Italy because they want Italy. They want to know when I was coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's opened the world to me through a podcast. It's funny. I mean, I love it. But so, what kinds of themes do you get in different places? Is it different? Um, because people maybe know you more from the movies in certain places where people here may have grown up with you or know people that you know? Well, it varies. Most, of, a lot of the f- things are, are basically th- from the movies because, uh, you know, I, unfortunately I've done 46 of them and maybe 16 are classics like Family Man, Seabiscuit, and, uh, Any Given Sunday. It was a great movie and, you know, it was, uh, Chances Are and Striptease with Demi Moore. I mean, I can go on and on and on. The Freshman with Marlon Brando. I, I love to- that movie. That is a great movie. <laughs> and that movie, we had so much fun on. Michael LaBelle and Andrew Bergman. And, uh, and I had the opportunity to be with Brando again. But yeah. um, So it's about acting. It's about food, where I went, when I'm coming back, my performances. I have a big following in Liverpool. It's crazy. And I used to go every summer, but now I've gotten so busy. I haven't been so like calls like that will come in when I'm coming back. In fact, the Sinatra fan club now in Liverpool 
is the Sinatra slash Johnny Russo fan club. <laughs> it's one of the oldest. And, and, and talk about art imitating or art material. Art imitating life, yes. I went with Sinatra on our way to the Cannes Film Festival and the Red Cross Ball one year. And we stopped in Liverpool. And I was in his audience. And now I'm on the same stage, and he's gone for many years, and it, 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 that, that's what goes on. I'm, I'm blessed. I'm really blessed because of the fact that I've stayed friends with so many people. So, I'm friends with, who could say I'm friends with three popes and six presidents? <laughs> so, you, so you know what you really need to do? You need to write a book about networking. <laughs> yeah. Because well, yeah. right? that's your true magic is you are a networking machine. <laughs> And I, you know, and, and, and thank you for that compliment because you got to be diversified. And the people I, w- I was around, that was it, man. That was the energy from the banking world to the stock market. I mean, I have friends like even right now with you know John Casamitidis, a billionaire. How many billionaire friends I have? They would never talk to me, but I'm entertaining. They come to my house for dinner. I mean, it's. I, I, my door opens to everybody. So, you know, then I have a couple of guys come into my house that should be doing a hundred years of good behavior. But I mean, you know, it's all, uh, it's, you gotta be diversified. So maybe your fifth book, cause you said you have a few more already in the hopper. Your <laughs> fifth book could be the networking secrets of Gianni Russo. And you know, <laughs> I don't think they're really secrets to just go out and do it. Well, but, but there is a, there is a, there is, this I was actually quoted a book about networking, and I said the secret to life is to be rich in the resource of people, and you are that uh, on steroids. <laughs> wow, that's good. thank you. That's so, very nice. in the in the time that we have left, let's talk about some of the networking people that you know you had relationships or knew. So you knew how many popes? <laughs> Three popes. And and how did you meet all of them, and in, in or what circumstances? Well, the popes. I, well, I I was. <laughs> I was doing a lot of business, money business in Rome with the Bank of Roma and the Vatican Bank. And most of that money came out of Vegas. And uh, Mr. Ocado and uh, Mr. Costello arranged that for me in my late 20s with a partner of mine in, in Chicago, Nick Nitty. So we, we'd go to the Vatican all the time. We met, you know, three different popes. But J- John Paul, as my grandchildren say to me, Papa, you're the only guy we know that knows the saint, because now he's a saint. That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. And I wear a necklace that he gave me. I'll show wow. it to you that Sunday night. I'll see that when I'm at my father's place. Yeah, please. And I, the whole audience will. So you it, had acting lessons. Hard to miss. <laughs> so, so you had acting lessons from Marlon Brando. And thank God, because he was so concerned, which I never knew. I was just a 26-year-old egomaniac that wanted to be in the movies. And I strained out a couple of things, and they gave me a part. But the thing was, uh, he was more concerned about my performance within the body of work that he's a part of. So when he was with Dick Smith for three hours in the morning, he was his makeup man that turned him into Don Corleone. We went over lines. He taught me techniques, like the closing scene in The Godfather, when Michael tells me I have to answer for Santini. All of that was Brando's coaching. Wow how to look up and look around who's listening. When he hands you the airline ticket, look down, make sure there's a ticket there. You already read the script. You already know you're going through the windshield, but you can't portray that four or five minutes before. The the people are going to know it. And he was the one that pointed out to me, you're going to be on a screen 
that's maybe 18 feet or 36 feet by whatever the numbers were. He said, that's close up. If they don't believe you, you've blown the whole movie. Wow. And you taught me so many great things, which I've used every day of my life. Little, little pressure, though, huh? Just <laughs> yeah, hello. So, so uh, let's talk about Marilyn Monroe because people are always fascinated by Marilyn Monroe. In fact, she's probably one of the well-known celebrities that still makes tons of money decades and decades after uh, well, her unfortunate Well, talking demise. about our, our audience that night, <clears throat> They're gonna, they had a, a, a rare meeting at Calneva in, in uh, Nevada, California border. And I, I was privileged to be the eyes and ears for Mr. Costello. And you're going to see photographs of Marilyn, me, Sinatra, all around the pool for the last three days of her life. When they were trying to convince her to seduce John one more time. But she hated him. And Bobby, Bobby got involved with, you know, Robert Kennedy. Because when uh, John promised her that once he become president, he was going to leave Jackie. Well, everybody knew that that, that wasn't going to happen, but she didn't believe it. And then she got involved with Robert, and Robert pregnated her. Most people don't know that. I, didn't I mean, know that. the That's... stories and the pictures that you're going to see at my show, nobody's seen before. I mean, wow. this is crazy. And that's why I'm doing it too. This is not just, this is the story of my life. But when you see the facets of my life and who, who portrayed them with me, these are icons throughout the world. Like Sinatra, Dean Martin. The stuff you're going to see is, is amazing. Now, let, let's talk for just a minute about what, it was, what was life like in the 1960s? Because this was all Kennedy, Cuban Missile Crisis, Bay of Pigs, Marilyn Monroe, Ken, you know, Bobby Kennedy, the Kennedy, the Robert Kennedy and the John F. Kennedy assassinations. I know. I mean, it was it was a tumultuous time in American history. Um, most of what we see in the early part of the 60s was black and white television because color. I don't think color television hit until a little bit later on. So when you see the films of the Kennedy assassination and Walter Cronkite, all that's in black and white. Right. What, what was it like in those days? You know, politically, socially? Well, I was in the thick of it on a different level because <clears throat> when Joe Kennedy went to Costello and wanted the mob to help his son become president, and they did, they were supposed to invade Cuba. You're talking about the Bay of Pigs. Bay of Pigs, yeah. The mistake John made was get Robert Kennedy, his brother, as attorney general. He was unbeknownst that his baby brother hated his father even hated John and his friends. And that's why he convinced John to get away from Sinatra after Sinatra hand-carried him to the White House. Sinatra was his handler along with his, his brother-in-law, Peter Lawford. They guaranteed the mob we could control him. And Control who? Kent, John or Robert? Both of them. Ah, okay. No, they didn't even care about Robert. Robert was appointed by the brother after he made it. Right, right. Once he got in, he appointed his brother attorney general. Once he got in, Robert convinced him there are no missiles on Cuba, and we're not going to invade it. You should stop that. And he did. So now the mob got the brother to become president. And now his brother hires Robert, and he's going after all the guys that got him in the White House. 
Well, it was soon after that, I'm flying all over the country again, not to meet mob people to get the guy elected. I knew there was going to be an assassination just by the tone of everybody and, and the anger, but I didn't think it was going to be John. I actually thought it would be Robert. But well, when it, I left... It ended up being both, in a way. Oh, yeah, it did. Yeah. It a matter of years. Oh, no, they died. They had to get rid of that dynasty. Because imagine if Robert became president. I mean, so the, the era you're talking about, I was on the ground doing it. I left the country for 22 months after the assassination. And I left that day. I left on November 22nd. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was going under the Verrazano Bridge when they announced the president was shot in Dallas, not killed. That was the first announcement. And me, like an idiot, because I knew I had like three or four days on the ship, all the pilot boats were coming to take all the men off. And I'm saying, I said, look at all these women. They're going to be on a boat with me alone. <laughs> <laughs> and then that night they made the announcement. And the weirdest thing, by telex on the ship newspaper, I saw Lee Harvey Oswald for the second time. When I went to New Orleans four days prior, he came in from Texas because Marcellus wanted him to be his shooter. They had four shooters. Nobody trusted each other. And then they had Lyndon Bain Johnson with, you know, uh, Texas Rangers as a backup. I mean, I got stories nobody has. Wow. This is, is this all in the book? It's all in the book, and you're going to hear a lot of it on stage. Because, right, uh, you know, as, as a student of history, uh, this is me. So essentially what you're saying is if, if John Kennedy did not appoint Robert Kennedy as his attorney general, the course of history probably would have been markedly different. Oh, my God, yeah. I, I, I mean, I know that. I mean, just, I mean, my, I, I spend days with Maya Lansky. You want to talk about a mentor? I spent days with this man. What was he like? He, I mean, he was like, you're, you're, well, uh, you're a mensch. In your, in your, right, right, yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> That's all he was. And he'd walk with his little white poodle, would sit on Lincoln Road. Johnny, how are you, Johnny? Everything okay? I mean, the guy was like, you know, you, you want to bring him a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Right? <laughs> that kind of <laughs> but powerful? Forget about it. That's why I love that one line. It was so true, and I heard it. We're going to be bigger than U.S. Steel. And they were, man. Well, look where U.S. Steel is today. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's, at that time, I'm saying. I know, but, <laughs> but I'm, you're here, and look where U.S. Steel is, is all I'm saying. You know, it's just a little insight there. In, in the little bit we have left, let's go back to, yes, you can. Yes, I can. Why? Why is that so important? What does it really mean? Well, you know, as we, we, we touched on it slightly. These, these kids today are not motivated. They don't even talk to each other. And, you know, I, I fortunately, and I say it I'm, truthfully, I fortunately was so blessed to get polio in 1949 because I don't know who I would be. I got that. I realized what life is about. Just, just the mobilization. You can get out of bed and walk. I retrained myself over three or four years to walk again. I had opportunities nobody would give me. But once I got them, I capitalized on them. I nurtured them. I took ballpoint pens from the conception to out on the streets. I mean, I just kept doing things like this. 
You know, I, 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 what I had in prop, I was building a hotel. I was what, 38 years old. I'm building a $72 million hotel in Las Vegas. I can't even spell. <laughs> so in the last minute, the ultimate question, where does your tenacity come from? The will to live, man. I pray. I believe in God. I believe in people. And that was it. I had to survive. And I took it through another level. And you know, it's funny. I'm still trying to survive. I'm not done. Far from it. Nope. In, in fact, for all of those out there to see how great the survival is, read his book, go to the podcast and watch him on the show. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, I, I cannot thank you enough for your time, your wisdom, well, your great you. stories. Your, I appreciate you know, it. it. It is very heartfelt to be with someone. Uh, you know, they talk about, you know, six degrees of separation, but you you kind of know everybody. So all people need to do is really know you and, and you know everybody. So, <laughs> you know, you don't need six degrees. You shorten it up by, know, by knowing you. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll I'm opening a... Uh, what do you call it? A, a, a okay. reference or a connection company. Well, <laughs> that's where that's what it is. It's all about networking. I'm telling you, this is your next, the fifth book, the fifth book, networking secrets, and you know, and then maybe you put together like a little networking business. People want to meet somebody, you know, they want to get a product placed, they need to get a TV show launched. Maybe they got to talk to you, you know. Well, I can help them. All right. <laughs> so quick, where are where where can people find you? Where are all the places, websites? Well. The websites go on my place, you know, go, go to my father's place for that. My father's place.com for my father's place. Uh, right. The show. And this it, is my father's place radio. So my father's place radio, the podcast, this will be on there too. You go on my website, go on the Hollywood Godfather website. I'm, I'm all over the place. Thank God. And uh, hopefully I'll be at my place both on February 9th and Mother's Day this year. Then I start my tour with the Mohegan Sun casino chain. I'll be around. I'm not leaving. <laughs> all right. So I look, I personally look forward to seeing you. For all out there, you got to meet this gentleman because it is an experience extraordinaire. With that, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit WCWP.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.